Welcome to At the Point of a Knife. I'm your host, Eric Navaretti. Each episode, I sit down with writers, producers, directors behind the modern era of horror and explore their inspirations, setbacks, and what it really takes to make your favorite films. Today, I'm interviewing writer, director, producer Gene Blaylock. He's the founder of Seraph Films, a digital production house that makes horror shorts, web series, and their upcoming first feature film, The Nightmare Gallery. Their popular series, Horror Haiku, is back with a brand new season and can be found on their YouTube channel. While there, you can also check out their augmented reality web series, The Disappearance of Madison Bishop, whose story unfolded each week based upon which clues real-life fans decoded between episodes. Let's check out some of the trailer to his award-winning short film, Among the Shadows, and then get started. You were chosen by him, but no one can tell you why. I know you're here! Shadows can't hurt you, baby. Welcome to At the Point of a Knife. This is Eric Navaretti. I have at the point of a knife today, filmmaker Gene Blaylock. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. Let's just get down to it real quick. I'd like to know some more about you. I'd like to know some more about how you got started in this. What sets you on this path? I've always had a love for film and arts in general, music, film, and you know, just traditional art outlets from a young age. I mean, starting with Star Wars, just watching movies all the time and things like that. And uh, at some point, as I was getting into college and trying to decide what I want to do, one of my I was editing all the, the our skate. I was on a skate team, a skateboard team, and so I was editing all the videos. And someone said, "You know, you can do that for a living if that's something you really enjoy doing." And I, it was something I did. I had no idea. I just didn't have a concept that you could actually make movies and there was stuff like that. And I switched my major immediately and started getting into filmmaking. But I, funny enough, I came to LA as a musician. My band, I started a band, and um, my band got picked up by a record label uh-huh. out here. So I moved out to LA as a musician and kind of had not, had kind of left filmmaking and video production and stuff behind in Chicago and came out. And for the first um, five years out, four or five years out here in LA, I was doing music. That's it. Hadn't even thought about movies again. You know, we were just making records and things. What was the band? It was called The Faded. It's out there somewhere. You can It pops up every now and again. Someone will send me a little link and be like, hey, there you are. I'm like, After the last tour a few years back, I um, wanted to take a break for a while because it was getting burned out. We're on the road all the time and trying to do records. And, and I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to maybe explore back into filmmaking? So I just I had this crazy idea and posted to a couple filmmaking groups that said, hey, I got this idea. I want to make three films in three months, three short films in three months. Who's in? From that, the people that joined there, that's kind of blown up and I haven't actually gone back to music since then. I've just been working on films for the past five years now. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. So you're, <laughs> you're in college. You kind of stumbled into film making and then somebody tells you that this could be your your profession this could be your living yeah i was i was i was a philosophy major (laughs) i just i just enjoyed cutting (laughs) our skateboarding videos together and and then someone went you can actually make money doing that Uh whether for television you know editing programs for television or whatever and then you know then i was like wow i can actually make movies that i had cameras that might you know i was in the television production course at school and i was like there's cameras we can go shoot something and it doesn't have to be news or anything else 
else. Ooh. I can get my friends and we'll just act out this scene and put it together. So yeah, that's kind of kind of so funny. I, I feel like most of the people that we've spoken to, they had the story of I was six years old and I was watching the late night movie and then I saw this and then I knew from that moment on, you know, I wanted to be a, a Hollywood screenwriter. Well, I, the fascination has <laughs> always been there ever since I saw ET. I mean, that's a film that everyone goes, oh, is there a film that you can point to? When I saw ET, I was real little and of course didn't understand filmmaking or anything at that point at all. But that film has over the years has always stuck with me as something that I wanted to, you know, I something there that I want to do. I don't know what it is. And through happenstance and friends suggesting that maybe you should look into editing. Um, yeah, it's like, oh, I can actually, I can, I can make E.T. I can make that thing that, uh, that was such a part of my childhood. So what was the thing that got you started directing then? Um, necessity. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the very first thing I did here in LA is my friend and I, just two of us running around the streets of Melrose with a girl in zombie makeup and a camera. Hmm. And so stand there, you know, so it was like something that I've always kind of had, a, whether it's through music or, or film, a, a kind of clear vision of what things should or should not be, at least through the stories I want to tell. And so it made sense that I would be the one that would direct them and, and make them look the way that I think they should look. What do you find most satisfying about this type of work? Just being able to be creative and telling stories, you know. To me, it's kind of, it goes back to the primitive thing in man. We've always painted on cave walls and told stories. And even back to before we had, you know, technology, the gods dragging the sun across the sky. We've always, man, man has always kind of wanted to tell stories. And just being able to put that out there in a, in a way that hopefully makes an impact on other people, or at least there's a beginning, a middle, end in the story that you were able to bring to life and tell. That's the most satisfying part of that. You know, just being able to put the stories out there. And there's no, really no rules or, or limitations on how you can tell the story. Are there particular types of stories that you want to be telling right now? As long as it's interesting or compelling to me, uh, you know, I, I like things that have a little bit of a heart to it, a little bit of a message to it, something that people can relate to. Each week it would probably be different in which story I want to tell, depending on what's in my head that way or what, what emotions I'm feeling that week or whatever. So nothing immediately pressing and there's always that one in the back of your head that some, someday you'll tell. But for now, no, just, you know, as long as it's interesting and compelling. What is it then about the projects that you do make? How do you know this one and not maybe the three or four other ideas that are <laughs> Most of the time it has to do with budget. We've got $3,000 in three days, so what story can we tell within that confine? You know, um, obviously we have the big stories that we want to tell and when the budget will rise, but yeah, up until now, just kind of said, okay, what stories can we tell? You know, I, I, this, this particular topic is interesting to me, so can we put it within this, the confines of the restrictions that we have with the budget and the locations and things like that? So that's the way it's worked up until now. It sounds like what you're saying is that a lot of the, the film work that you've done is basically like out of necessity. You needed somebody to be a director so then you stepped up to the plate and you directed. I guess in, a, in, in an abstract way, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the way it's been. I mean, I definitely, personally, I have to be creative. I have to be doing something otherwise I get really bored and, you know, it's not good. So I need to be creating something and so we always try and figure out stories that we can tell and do within our time restraints and budgets. One of the things that I've noticed talking to a lot of our guests, especially people that are working with lower budgets, they're independent, is that People have to get their hands dirty. They have to wear a lot of hats. Mm -hmm. Do you have any insight into that? What does it mean to make films in this way? Well, you mean low budget and, and multiple hat things? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think even on the bigger independent budget, I think you've got to do. I think you're going to wear multiple hats. You're going to do multiple jobs. You're going to, because we don't have, you know, on big sets, the assistants have assistants who have assistants, and it's just not the way it works on ours. I mean, the last film we just did was a crew of 
six of us, you know, so, you know, we're up in Big Bear, you know, the writer's holding the boom mic and, you know, it, it, you do what you, you know, you do what you have to do to get the, the film made on those budgets. Um, but I don't think it's a bad thing. I actually really prefer super small crews. I don't, I like knowing everyone's name and, and I've been on crews where we had 60, 70 people on it and all the way down to like four or five, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I prefer small crews because I think everyone brings their A game. Everyone is there because they love filmmaking and they love the project that they're doing and they're giving 110%. It's no one's at crafty table just, you know, hanging out. Everyone is there and they're actually doing something and everyone is bringing their best forward at, the, at that time. So I prefer working with small crews and, and, you know, obviously I'd love to have a little bit bigger budgets from time to time, but, you know, you make do with what you have and, and I think it I think it helps you become a stronger filmmaker because if, if someone, I've heard people say, oh, I'm, I'm a director, that's all I do and or, I, you know, I, I only, I'm only a cinematographer. Well, I, I think ha- having those different positions on the crew helps you, A, communicate with, when you're on a larger crew, helps you communicate with the crew a little bit better because you understand what they, you know, what's entailed in that particular position. I think it's good to get the experience and figure out, you know, I've met people that came in and said, oh, I want to do this, but after being on a film set and doing this other job, they're like, I actually really like this a lot. I'm not sure they're going to be production design. This is a lot more interesting than what I thought I was going to like. So I think it helps you figure out where you want to fit within the crew, and I think it makes you a stronger filmmaker because if you understand why the sound guy is telling you have to hold, and you're not just getting frustrated because like, why aren't we rolling, you know? So, so if you've actually done sound and, and, and had to do it, or if you've had, you know, had to edit your own films, then you know, you don't shoot things you're not going to use in edit, you know? So. Yeah, we've had guests before, um, directors who originally started out in editing or started out in acting, even. I feel like being able to have at least some context for those other areas of the filmmaking process helps you do, I mean, regardless of whether or not it's directing, it helps you do a better job because you know what the other members of your team exactly. need in order for them to do their job well. Exactly. So exactly. I personally, for the work that, that we do here, I actually feel antsy if we're not doing like three jobs at once. Exactly. I feel like you've got too much time on your hands. I, I agree. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, you're sitting there like, I should be doing something. What, what can I go do? So, How do you build an effective team then? Like a good crew. You're saying that like the last one you had six people. Yeah. How do you get the best six people together so that you know they're all going to pull their weight? I've been really fortunate. I've, there's only been a couple people that have come onto one of our sets that have just been, you know, we had to not work with them ever again. Most of the people that come on is because they're referrals from people that I actually trust. So my, my cinematographer say, I've got this person that wants to come help or this person that wants to be involved and I trust her enough to know that if she's recommending someone, then they're going to be really good. So I've been really fortunate. Like I said, there's only been a couple of people that have been on any of our sets that really just weren't, that we've just said, okay, well that was that and we'll not work with them again. I think it has to do with being being very clear and being very forward about everything. Don't try and say, oh, you're, you're going to be paid in points and you know when you know good and well, that's not going to happen. Just be very upfront about what the project is. Be very honest about it and prove that you're going to work equally as hard as they are. It's not that you know, they're not going to, you know, you're going to be there helping them unload the gear and then you know, you're not just going to be sitting back in your director's chair waiting for all the gear to come on set and things. So I think, I think that's the big part is just be open and honest about it and, mm-hmm. and just, you know, tell everyone, you know, Hey, this is what it is. You know, and if you want to be come along for the ride, we'd love to have you. Can we talk a little bit about Seraph Films? Mm-hmm. I want to know more about what was the inspiration behind founding that? Yeah, it, it, it kind of started as just a, a label to put on things I was doing in college. It was just like, oh, we should probably put something at the beginning of this that has a, because that's what this, you know, you go see a big film, there's like the studio logos at the beginning. So it kind of just started that way. And then uh, then it kind of became, like when I got here to LA and got back into filmmaking, it kind of became this collective of like-minded people that wanted to create these interesting projects and, and do that. And it just kind of birthed out of that to where now we 
we've got a core of you know about six of us that are the, the the core six that will be on every single project and help creating everything and then we reach out to the other there's a big kind of an extended family of serif that we okay and we got a bigger production with a bigger bigger budget because we're bringing Jill as AD or this person is that or this person is that you know so there's a bigger network that they're off doing other things as well during the week but jumping on a serif project we will so yeah it just became a bunch of like-minded filmmakers that wanted to make cool projects and kind of grew out of that to where we started doing client work and you know stuff for other people and then shooting music videos for this person or commercials for that person and so yeah it was just me going hey I got this idea let's do these short films and then you know 30 people whittling down to 10 down on the you know down to six these are the people I want to work with and do every project with it's pretty extraordinary because it's so organized and the amount of content that <laughs> is being released under the banner <laughs> is really unlike anything that I've seen from other independent filmmakers so that's why I want to know more about it because sure, you sure. have a huge it feels like a huge team at least as like <laughs> you know somebody viewing it going through your content it seems like pretty massive undertaking to do everything that you guys are, are handling among the shadows uh, it was our probably our biggest crew yet and our biggest shoot ever and that was pretty big but then the web series is we're down to like two or three people to you know, three or four of us just really? doing everything yeah like I said earlier carefully crafting knowing your limitations well we have this location and this amount of time and this amount of money so let's not try to tell a story that's gonna be impossible within that and and that that way it feels and looks a lot bigger than it actually is so but uh, thank you for saying that <laughs> can we talk a little bit about the web series that you guys are producing uh, sure or haiku or haiku yeah it's a really interesting one I, I want to know more about the development of that concept yeah, well, a few years back we had done a short film called Vendetta, which wasn't a horror film at all. It was a little action piece that led to a major YouTube network contacting us and saying, hey, this film you did, can it be expanded out into a, a web series? So we said, sure, you know, absolutely. And, and after a bunch of talks and, you know, they were funding it and, and putting it together. It was actually a pretty terrible experience because we weren't doing things for ourselves it was under someone else that was that was putting their hands in and changing things and moving things around and and really changing the way Seraph kind of worked and it was a really stressful time for us but having come out of that and having to produce a weekly episodical thing for these guys we thought this is really interesting now can we take something we really love like horror and is there a way we can do it on our own channel and do it for ourselves? And uh, James Boring just kind of jokingly said, well, let's do horror haiku where people leave little haikus and we turn them into little short horror films. And I thought, that's absolutely ridiculous. Let's do that, you know? Uh -huh. So that's that's kind of the way it started was J James just kind of threw out a little idea that was like, yeah. And we knew dealing with that, that audience interaction was was important for what for YouTube. So that was part of the criteria. It's like, can we do a horror thing that brings the uh, the audience in and makes them a part of the story? And we did um, four seasons of that and then kind of went on hiatus to try and explore other projects. Because it is very time consuming to do a weekly web series, you know, right. you, you know yeah. and deliver every week, you know, uh, unless you pre-shoot a whole bunch of stuff. And, um, you know, we didn't have time to do that. So, yeah, and then we were on hiatus for a little while and we just, we thought, you know, earlier this year, like, why don't we bring it back for at least one more season? Everyone really enjoyed it. Everyone really liked it. We keep constantly every day via emails or, or, or YouTube you know, messages like, when are you bringing it back? When are you going to bring it back? And mm -hmm. since we're kind of on a little lull right now, waiting for the feature to take off rather than do another, you know, more short films, we thought, yeah, let's bring more haiku back for another season. That was one of the things that I thought was really interesting about it is the audience interaction. I mean, I, I went through and watched most of them and just so many comments and then in every single video is people leaving their haiku suggestions yeah. as well yeah. I think that's really interesting that you created this web series but then you also built into it the need to have the community interact with it as well and that 
to, to me is surprising. I, I don't see that sort of that level of interaction from as many other content producers. We loved interaction with with the fans and, and audience. It, you know, that's one reason I'm a big fan of YouTube and, and things like even a short film. You put it online, you get you're suddenly getting instant feedback. What people liked, what they didn't like, and it helps you for your next project. Okay, well, people just thought this character was absolutely miserable. Why? So it helps you become a better writer, better director, better filmmaker. YouTube, of course, has a bunch of trolls as well. But the constructive yes. we've been really fortunate. <laughs> Most of the criticisms on our channel have been very, very constructive. And I'm all for that. Bring me constructive criticism every day. Well, why didn't you like that? Okay, explain interesting, you know. Whether or not I agree with you, I like I like knowing that. And I, you know, I think YouTube is, is, is works best when the community is interactive. And that's was that, like I said, that was a very important part of Horror Haiku is that we wanted to make sure that whatever we had created, the community had a way to directly contribute to the stories. Can you tell me a little bit more about the production schedule for it then? You mentioned that there's really like a core team of three people, but you're releasing content every week. I mean, like, um, how do you manage that? Uh, well, I mean, the original season was much bigger. We had a crew of like 30 and stuff like that we were doing, okay. you know, and we would literally shoot, we would take two days and we'd shoot f uh, five episodes a day. There's a lot of pre-production on it, of course, obviously. You go through and sort out all the all the haikus. There were some really great haikus that just, it's like, there's no way we can do this with the, you know, with our budgets that we have. So we would go through and, and figure out which ones we could do write all the little scripts and stuff like that and in the original season of horror haiku they were all single shots i don't know if you picked like, the first two the first two seasons of horror haiku andrew and i really wanted to explore how can, how can we keep it interesting and tell a story a three or four minute story in a single shot the original episodes were all that way we would shoot and then uh shoot 10 episodes and then kind of once we had about four episodes edited we would go we, that season would start and so that we were we were always work had you know a little bit of a little bit already cut to go up yeah uh this year yeah, this one is we're a much smaller crew. The last one, the last crew, we just we just shot two episodes for the new season of Horror Haiku, and it was a crew of seven, I want to say six or seven. So it's just it's again, it's just a lot of pre-production and making sure you know. So we you know, we shot two episodes, and I'll get those edited and get ready to go live, and we're gonna hopefully shoot two more episodes next week, I think. Can we talk a little bit about uh, the disappearance of Madison Bishop? Sure. Now. I watched the whole series and thought it was very, very intriguing, but also I feel like stylistically a little bit different than a very lot of the other content that very you different. produce. So I want to know more about what was the inspiration behind breaking away from the content you've already done? I always like to try new things. We, we always want to push the limits of, you know, if we've, if we've done it before, we're probably less interested in doing it again because we always want to push ourselves as filmmakers and grow and things like that. Again, we had some downtime and we, we wanted to put out some content because we hadn't really been making, you know, we'd been kind of on the hiatus from short films and from web series. Uh, John, my creative partner, is huge into ARGs. He loves alternative reality games and things like that. And kind of came up with this idea, what if we did some type of uh, ARG web series that would, uh, you know, again, hopefully bring people in, the community in, to help, you know, solve some puzzles and things like that. So we kind of came up with this idea. When we initially launched that, we didn't say anything about it. We just said, we have a fan that's running mm -hmm. some problems and she thinks the internet could help her. So we just put them out as potentially real right. things. And so therefore, once you once you establish that it's not coming from a film production company and it's some girl that probably doesn't know a lot about technology and filmmaking, you kind of now are limited to cell phones or small cameras or something that, that's not necessarily cinematic in scope mm -hmm. as far as visually. And it becomes more of a vlog. It becomes more of her hold, you know, holding the camera right. and telling stories. Um, it made it very simple to shoot and very simple to 
edit because literally you just took the best take of her doing it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it looks something John, John would laugh at me about because I'm like, oh my god, it just doesn't it doesn't feel cinematic, you know? It doesn't look cinematic. He's like, it's not supposed to. Right, um, right. So that was that, that kind of tore apart at my soul that it didn't. But it, it engaged a whole different audience we had never before yeah. reached at all before because now we had people trying to solve the clues that she was being sent and there's still a lot in there. And the interesting thing about that is that we couldn't pre-write the, the season because there were there were a certain number of clues that were buried in each phantom video that she received and depending on which ones that the audience solved we'd have to tell that story wow so we couldn't okay. pre-shoot it was we were, every week we were shooting a new episode based on whatever clues they had found and we kind of john knew the overall arc of where the story was going but if they found this clue we had to run this direction if they found this clue oh. we had to go down this alley and then the interesting thing that happened is they would find things that we, we never intended there was a there was a piece of poetry that they found that was just randomly thrown into the phantom video thing and they found this whole book that was about this poetry and and john went that's really interesting okay so he started writing things writing that into the story so it was it was to me it was interesting to see how it organic uh, organically kind of became what it did even though we kind of knew the end goal how we got there was very different than how we i thought it would it would go wow what is the writing process like that on then i mean so does that mean that there are undiscovered clues that fans haven't found yet and that you're ready to explore. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly. We're going to do horror haiku right now, and I don't know when we'll bring back that particular season. But yeah, there are there are still a, a good number of clues from those videos and stuff that haven't been solved yet that could take the story in a different direction. So, wow. but the interesting thing we're doing with this version of horror, this this season of horror haiku and and Madison is. We're tying the universes together. The universe that Madison Bishop series lives in and the new horror haiku called The Museum and The Feature. So we've kind of, over the past year, taking everything and trying to create this universe to build up to the feature we're doing because it's all going to live in this Lovecraftian-type universe. Very cool. So, so yeah, so we're trying to, you know, trying to you know, create the own Seraph <laughs> cinematic universe. So, <laughs> <laughs> What was the fan reaction from Madison Bishop, that first video that you put out? Because it, it's you on screen. You're saying, like, we've got to fan, right. you know, if you have any information. Were there any fans who maybe thought that this was real for a hot oh, minute? There, there, were, there were quite a few that people that know me personally were sending me text messages. Is this for real? Or <laughs> is this is this real? You know, and you have to kind of bite your tongue and go, I think so, you know, because, you know, uh, you know, you didn't want to give away the things. And I think there were people right off the bat that knew that this was an ARG, especially mm-hmm. new fans that had come. There's this one guest user, 17. I don't know. He works for NSA or something because he would, like, he would solve That's a real, his, his name is guest person? user 17, yeah. And and, we, and he would solve things like within minutes of things going up. He, he actually forced the clues to get harder and harder because like, okay, wow, this guy just solved, the video just went up two and a half minutes ago and this guy's already solved three of the clues. Okay. Oh my God. I, I thought, I remember her bringing him up in, um, in one of the episodes. I assume that these were characters that were... No, the to. guest user 17 is a real guy who lives in Decatur, Georgia. So. That, that's incredible. Yeah, he actually posted it because part of what we did too for the Madison Bishop thing is we actually had in New Zealand, Atlanta, Chicago, London, we planted USB drives, physical drives. So if you found it, some of these GPSs, you could go and physically find the thumb drive like taped mm-hmm. to the bottom of a park bench or something. And mm-hmm. guest user 17 posted a video of him in Atlanta, Georgia, going through the park, finding the, uh-huh. finding the USB stick that had a clue on it that would take you to the next to a secret video that no one else could get to that would then give you another clue to go back to something else. Is he the only one that's found one yet? Uh, Someone in New Zealand found one. I think those are the only two that got found was because the coordinates were all hidden in the Phantom video. So right. if you didn't solve those clues, you didn't have the GPS coordinates. So wow. we had two. We had two people find. I think New Zealand and uh, Georgia. 
actually find the USB drives. So they got a little special video that uh, mm. no one else got. So <laughs> that, that, that's amazing. But yeah, it was a whole different fan base. Like the, the, it was really weird because like uh, we gained this whole ARG fan base, but the horror people kind of stayed quiet. Our horror fans, they, oh, they, really? they, some of them got into it, but not not a whole lot of them. So so it was it was oh. very it was a very interesting experiment to see where that would lie. Can you tell me more about the Atwell cameo? How did that, how did that happen? <laughs> oh, Jack's Atwell. Um, we happened at the same publicist. Okay. So, so we were asking, we were we were asking our, our publicist, do you, you know, do you have anyone that you know, may be interested? She's like, I got this guy that's a missing in Alaska investigator mm -hmm. and super nice guy. He, you know, he we we had to like do a Skype call and coordinate the two videos happening right. at the same time. But uh, really nice guy, yeah. So that's that's how it happened. Is our publicist happened to be the same people. <laughs> I know that you touched on it a little bit earlier, and I do remember seeing some press about Shadow Guide mm -hmm. as your first feature. Can you talk a little bit more about the well, progress that's happening? Yeah, that's not going to be the first feature. Okay. <laughs> it's a different one. Yeah, okay. Shadow, but you were asking earlier about projects, the stories I want to tell. Yeah. That has been in my head since probably like 12, 13 years old. It's kind of been okay. the, the creature in that anyway has kind of been there. And the story that I wanted to tell with that and, and things like that. So it's been, kind of been festering in the back of my head for years and years and years and years. And then we got the chance to kind of do it. We had some, a potential investor that was interested in, in, in maybe funding it. But it's a bit esoteric in some of the way. It's Donnie Darko-esque in that kind of the way that it kind of tells a story. You don't know exactly what's happening with the universes and things like that. We had an investor that said, well, can you give me a proof of concept? So uh, we wrote kind of a, a prologue to it, a little short story that kind of leads up to kind of maybe introduce the main character and the creature and maybe kind of hopefully ask a lot more questions than we answer so that you go, wow, okay, now I need the answers and would fund it. Um, ultimately, he wasn't interested. It just didn't work out for whatever reason for him to be a big investor on the feature. So it's still there. I still want to do it. It will not be the first feature because um, okay. it's, it's, really, it's going to be a really expensive feature. So, um, mm. so hopefully that will be one story that I will be able to tell eventually. So, what is the one that you are uh, working on? The one we're doing right now is called the Nightmare Gallery, and oh, it's um, okay. it, it, it's it, it was a, again it was a birth of <laughs> kind of a necessity thing. I had been brought in to direct this feature for another production company, and it kind of got lagged up with the distribution company and them going back and forth on it, and so it kind of stalled. But John, who had written that feature, said, "Well, why don't we just do something that we know? So we've got the stu we've got our studio, we have access to, we've got access." to this house and so those are three locations what story can we tell and how cheaply can we tell this story so he wrote a script that fits in the same universe that we've been building up and that will be the first feature so hopefully in may we're going to be shooting you know we're mostly funded right now got a little bit more uh, to raise we may do a kickstarter or something like that for that just to kind of get a little bit of extra budget going but that will be the first feature but it's in the same universe kind of a lovecraftian ancient gods coming into the world type story so it's probably a bit more of a thriller than it is straight up horror and with some very uh very david lynchian type okay. sequences in there when you get into the dream type areas but yeah. i definitely got that feeling watching in particular some of the videos that uh liar sent Patrick Laws, Patrick Laws, sent to madison yeah, yeah yeah i definitely got like a lynch feel from yeah. I, i'm a huge david lynch fan have okay. been forever you know what's the uh fascination with lovecraft then is that something that you've been a fan of for a while actually it's more john john's more the lovecraft i mean I, okay. i'm a big i like lovecraft you know i have mm -hmm. 
you know, but jo- that's definitely John's doing. Is he wants to he wants to create this Lovecraftian world with the gods and things like that. So he's very knowledgeable when it comes to that stuff. So, but yeah, that's more of him. So, but it, it's fun and it's interesting. So, how did this partnership with John start? Yeah, I went to a meeting for the other production company that I was going to do Two Wolves with, and he happened to be there, and we just hit it off. I mean, we're both vegan, we're both you know filmmakers, we're both you know we just kind of hit it off and became really good friends, and so he just kind of came on over to Seraph and started helping out here. That's really just a chance happened meeting at Raleigh Studios and you know two years ago so is there a major difference between starting the pre-production on a feature compared to some of the other stuff that you've done like Among the Shadows which is a short but still a pretty sizable yeah. length as and it used to be short. longer too we cut it down oh really <laughs> it was like about 40 minutes when we got it is done. that a similar process or is it just a I, I scale think, issue I, I think it's a very similar process uh, just scaled up I mean people may argue that shorts may not need as much pre-production and certainly we, we, we've taken less pre-production on certain shorts depending on how much time you have and things like that Among the Shadows we spent a lot of time in pre-production because we knew we only had a limited budget and a limited mm-hmm. number of days and and when I had talent for so long and things like that. Um, so I, I don't I don't think you can do too much pre-production, whether it's a short or a, a feature. I yeah. think the more you do there, the better and the better prepared you're going to be for when you get on set. Now, of course, everything's going to go wrong once you're on set. But I think if, you, if you've done your pre-production and you know the story inside out and you've got everything laid out, you're able to easily go, okay, we can't do that. Let's do this and make this work and, and still, you know, it helps you think on your feet a little bit better, I think. But yeah, obviously there's a lot more pre-production in a feature, you know, when you're setting it up and, and the schedule gets a lot more crazy when you, you know, you got certain actors on certain days, so you have to shoot those out and the day scheduling, things like that. But it's pretty much the same, I think, at least for us anyway. I approach each project as I like to put as much pre-production as I can. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if you want to save yourself uh, time and money and headaches, like do as much pre-production yeah. as possible. Yeah. I don't understand why anyone would want to skimp on that. For the shorts, I'll storyboard a certain scene or something if I can't exactly figure out how it's going to work. But for the feature, we're pretty much doing animatic of it before we even start. So, you know, mm-hmm. storyboarding it out so we can kind of make sure that things are going to work the way you want because mm-hmm. there's a lot more money at stake and the schedules have to happen a lot quicker than, than the shorts. The shorts have always been, for me, the way to make all the mistakes and, you know, when the stakes aren't that high. You do the shorts if it's a lousy short, it is what it is. You know, you didn't lose a lot of money and you're certainly not got investors mad at you. So. <laughs> <laughs> Let's circle back for a second to Madison Bishop again. Mm-hmm. Especially now that you're telling me that you were essentially creating the narrative based off of what fans were uncovering in it. I want to know more about the production on that. You visit so many locations in the LA area. Right. I mean, like, for one thing, did you get clearance for all those or was that like a gorilla? Oh, no, no. Just going there <laughs> it, was, it was all gorilla. Yeah, we didn't. Okay. I mean, the, the budget on that was zero. It's like literally just feeding people here and there and things uh, like that. So, no, it was all gorilla filmmaking. Luckily, like I said, it's either cell phone or we're using an Osmo camera at some point. Yeah. So, super low profile. No she one looks like a tourist. Yeah, no yeah. one was really like, what are they doing over there? Are they filming something? You know? Mm-hmm. So, it really didn't get any trouble at all. Some of the locations were happenstance. I was hiking one day with a, with Allie from Seraph and we happened to see this cave over in the distance. Like, What's that cave? So, we hiked over to it and then Googled it. Oh, it's the cave of Muntez. And then it had this whole cult history behind it with yeah, the with shaman great. and thing. We're like, okay, let's put that into the web series, you know? Yeah, that, that's really all it was. It was you know, then that actually came from a single frame that was in the Phantom video. I had taken a picture on my iPhone uh-huh. of the cave and thought that was cool, you know? So I just stuck it as a single frame in the Phantom video and one of the fans found it and posted all the history about it and we're like, okay, we didn't even know the history about it. They had pointed out the history behind it. We're like, that's mm-hmm. interesting. Let's put it in there. She'll go back and visit there mm-hmm. if they find that clue. And then the other things were just interesting places we could go, like the, LA, the old abandoned LA Zoo that looks good when you yeah, get in there with, with the, the graffiti and you have to crawl 
go to all the different little places and things like that. So it's just trying to find places that fit within the, the concept of the story, you know, the, the narrative of, of the cult that had abducted her and things like that. And just any place we thought we could shoot without getting in a lot of trouble, mm -hmm. you know, so. Uh, what about Among the Shadows? Like, for instance, you visited the Iliad in that one, right? Or no, that was Madison Bishop. We went to the Iliad, oh, the bookstore. Yeah, yeah, so. How, how do you approach businesses, though, or locations where you don't necessarily have, like, a location budget, but you're going up to the owner or the manager and saying, like, hey, can we do a scene here? Among the, the, the Shadows, we needed a hardware store. So we mm -hmm. literally just started calling around the hardware stores, you know, saying, you know, hey, what can we do? And here's what we have. And we got a lot of no's, a whole lot of no's, you know, because mm -hmm. you know, as soon as you say you want to shoot, they're like, all right, what's going on? You know, how much can you give me money wise? But again, I think it comes back just being straight forward, straight honest. Hey, we're independent filmmakers. We don't have a huge budget. Here's what we need. Here's what we're willing to give you in return. Can you work with us? And then luckily North Hollywood Hardware right on the Laurel Canyon here. The guy was like, well, if you can, you know, if you can come in before I'm open and uh, yeah, if you can pay me what you say you can pay me for that, then yeah. Yeah, come in and, and do it. So we got there at like 5 a.m. and shot until 9 when they opened or something like that. But again, I think it just comes down to just being completely open honest and being willing to get a lot of no's. Don't let that discourage you too much. Just kind of keep trucking through, you know, for every one no you're going to get, someone eventually is going to go, yeah, you know what? That's kind of cool. I, I, would, I would like to see my hardware store in a film. I think that'd be interesting. And there's some other people had filmed there before, so he was, he was pretty savvy with it and was like, yeah, cool. No worries. You know, so really nice guy. Can you talk a little bit about your involvement in the horror community and the sort of engagement that it feels like a lot of your, your projects have with the fans? Yeah, horror has always been fascinating to me. It's something, you know, ever since a little kid watching like the Sunday afternoon monster movies of old black and white universals, my friend Patrick and I, you know, playing Star Wars or watching. They're, they're definitely, I think, way more hardcore horror fans than I am. I'm not, okay. I don't like a lot of gore, like just for the sake of gore, chopping off heads and body parts and things like that. I like the psychological side. You know, I've always, I grew up reading Edgar Allan Poe. So, you know, seeing all those old Vincent Price ones turned into films and things. That's what really fascinated me, the old Twilight Zones. More of the psychological or the obscure kind of the possibilities of what else is out there in the other dimensions and realms and things like that are just very fascinating to me. And luckily, the, I mean, the independent horror film community is awesome. I mean, like they, yeah. they are super supportive. They, they want to see good content. They want to see independent films rise above. So they've been very supportive and I'm very grateful for that. Um, I think we've, we've kind of got our own little niche within the community. There's certain directors that do certain things better and certain directors that do different things. But yeah, they've been very supportive. I don't know exactly how it happened that we slipped into it other than I was making movies and, and you know making short little films for YouTube and people picked up on it. And the, the LA community is really tight-niched. You know, this person, oh, well, then you need to work with this person. And so they, they connect you. They, they, you know, it's kind of, you're only three or four people away from someone else in the horror community. And, and everyone jumps in and helps the other projects. I get, you know, I jump in on my friends' projects. They come and help me on my projects. And yeah, so it's really supportive. It feels like a lot of the stuff that you guys are making has a particular level of engagement with the fans that, like I said earlier, mm -hmm. you, you don't normally see from a lot of content makers. Is that something that is intentionally built into the projects, or is that something that you just kind of fall into um, because of how you run your, your well, the, the web series absolutely is 100% intentional. It's like mm -hmm. we want to engage the horror community. We want them to be a part of the project. We want them to help us create the stories they tell, because I think you're going to be more interested in it. If you go, oh, wow, I wrote that haiku. That, now, that, you know, here's, here's a little film that I had a part of. We do sets and stuff. We encourage, you know, 
know, any, any indie filmmakers to come and be a part of it. So yeah, the, for the web series stuff, it's very much in purposeful engagement of the community. Can you talk a little bit about your screenwriting contest that I noticed was running recently? Yeah, just, it, just, it just completed. We didn't really have any short films lined up. For, we got some that are releasing this year, but we're not really shooting any this year. And we thought, well, it'd be interesting to see what the fans out there or other people, maybe there's a story that we, we wouldn't think of of our own that we would do. And we also thought, you know, this would be an interesting, fun way to, A, do a short this year, because every year we do an um, annual horror film night around Halloween that we show a new short film at, and we don't really have anything lined up of our own because we're going to be so busy with this feature. So we wanted to definitely have a short that we could show in October at this. And um, it also a way to raise a little funds for the feature film, you know, so mm -hmm. all those all the submission fees go straight into the fund for the feature film. Mm -hmm. And we got submissions from all over the world, from Italy and uh, Australia and uh, wow. yeah, so all over the world. Some of them were, you know, some were really great, but undoable because they're just so big in scope. They got school buses and children and things like that. And so narrowing it down to find the one that we can actually do for the budget and make it work. What sort of strategies do you have as far as like raising funds for these shorts and these web series? Uh, the, the shorts so far, or the web series so far, has all been basically whatever we have in our pockets. You know, we do have a couple really great angel executive producers that have been there from day one. So, mm -hmm. say, hey, I want to do this short film, so they'll throw a thousand dollars in and stuff like that. But with the shorts, they're basically just buying EP credit for IMDb. So, you know, there's no there's no payback. You know, we don't have to, we're not required to pay them back any money. It's kind of like a, you know, kind of a Kickstarter thing, but okay. but without doing Kickstarter. So we just go to them and say, hey, we got the short film we want to do. And, and, and Today we go okay. We got five thousand dollars. All right. So can we do the, you know can we do the story? The feature is a whole different ball of wax. We've got investors that we have to that get percentages paid back depending on what it's made and things like that. But mm. yeah, the strategy has always just been well, how much money can we get from people that really want to see this project made and then tell the story that, that within that. So. Is there a piece of advice you wish someone would have given you when you were first starting off in film? I don't know. I, 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 even if they had, I don't know if I would have listened to them at the time. <laughs> I, I'm a pretty stubborn person. If I get an idea in my head, I kind of go with it. No, I don't, I don't know if there's any piece of advice that I would have hoped I got that I didn't get already. I mean, I kind of knew what I was getting into, I think, when I when I started this. So, again, I probably wouldn't listen anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> Is there some advice that you would give to a listener who's maybe hearing this right now and thinking, I want to start making films too. Do it. Just go out there and do it. Don't worry about, I hear so much, well, if only I had this, only had that. You know, you have a cell phone that has a 4K camera on it now. Mm -hmm. It's not great. It's not perfect. But you know what? You can start telling stories. And they're going to be terrible at first. Like, oh, well, you ever show your, uh, your films you did in college? Absolutely not. They were absolutely total <laughs> rubbish. No. But that's, that's part of the process. You've got to make bad stuff before you make good stuff. So, yeah, just get out there and do it. And don't worry about it being good or bad. Just tell the stories and then really get feedback. Listen to people you trust. You can make a film and you will get people saying it's the best thing they've ever seen. And, and the, you got people saying it will be the biggest piece of crap they've ever seen. And both people you need to take with equal amounts of grains of salt because the truth is probably somewhere down the middle. You probably made an okay film. So figure it out. Figure out the criticism that is good and use it and, and grow from it and figure out, take the praise that is good and, and use it again and again. So just get out there and do it and don't be afraid to make mistakes. See what happens. What scares you the most? <laughs> the current administration. 
<laughs> That's pretty scary. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I'm an atheist and a skeptic, so I don't have a lot of like a ghost or you know monsters under the bed type mm. things. That stuff doesn't really scare me that much. They're great for to put on film and everything, but stuff like that doesn't really scare me. It's more like I guess humans really kind of scare me. Humans, mm. what humans are capable of, and, and you know, intolerance and hatred, and the way I see people treat other people that really scares me. That here at 2017, that we can have a society that still some of this stuff exists that we haven't evolved far enough to not have some of this stuff. You know, I, I see people treated so badly, especially online with the bullying and people yeah. just saying some of the most hateful, horrible, racist, homophobic, whatever things that they could possibly say to another human being. And that's really scary. It makes me very sad because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all humans on this planet. And that's pretty scary that people like that exist. What's the scariest thing that you've ever done? scariest thing I've ever done. Quite honestly, everything I do, I'd like it to scare me a little bit because it means I'm moving into new areas that I haven't been in before. And I, to me, that's very important that I'm always trying new things and pushing myself into new directions. Probably this feature film will be is the scariest thing I've ever done on a filmmaking level because suddenly now there's other people's money at stake here. There's a lot of pressure. I make a short film, put it on YouTube. People don't like it. Who cares? Now, if I make this feature and we can't pay back the investors, that's scary. So mm. from from a professional standpoint, probably the, the upcoming feature is probably the most scary thing I've ever done. Outside of that, mm, I don't know. I've always been scared of pretty much everything I knew I've tried, but I think fear is a good motivator. What are you doing right now to keep motivated and focused and on track with your, your feature? We talk every day about it. We have you know some, there's certain discussions because we got certain talent reading this and that. So there's always a, at least a couple hour discussion every day that we're, that, that we're doing. And we're starting to build the storyboard, starting to build the shot list, start roughing out the schedule and things like that. We haven't fully moved into pre-production yet, but we're, we're, we're still kind of in pre-production, pre-pre-production. So right. kind of doing that. You know, while we're waiting to do that, we're doing Horror Haiku, which we're trying certain... Uh, we want to do this shot for the feature. Let's do it for Horror Haiku and make sure it's going to feel the way we think it's going to feel and create the emotion that's going to... So we're using Horror Haiku to try and, you know, do things that, you know, keep, keep ourselves sharp and clear for, you know, when we get on set for the feature. What does horror mean to you? Horror to me, it's interesting because I have so many friends that won't even watch any of my films because they don't know I'm not a horror fan. And I think if they just watch my film, they would realize it's not really that scary at all. It's, it's you know, it's more of a psychological thing. Horror to me, it, no matter what other emotions you've had in your life, at some point you've been in a situation that you've been scared. Fear is kind of the, that primal root of, of a lot of our other emotions. You know, I think it, it motivates fear of being alone. So therefore I got to go find, you know, a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Fear of failure. So therefore I'm going to work harder at work to make sure I'm a success and make a lot of money. So I think fear is a big motivator for most everything. And, and to me, that's kind of what horror is. It kind of lets us live out a lot of the horrific things, get stuff out that we can't do in everyday life. You know, you can't just walk down the street and kill someone, but you know, you've, you've, everyone's certainly been mad enough. You're like, oh, I would just kill that person. Well, I can do it on film and not and get away with it. You know, I won't, I won't go to jail for that. So, so I, th I think it's, I think it's a good release for things and a way to get things that uh, kind of scare you or worry you every day out in one way or the other, you know, manifest out on screen and, and horror. You know what that noise means. It's time for the lightning round. There are no wrong answers. <laughs> Just fast answers. Fast answers, okay. Alright. <laughs> What's the scariest movie you've ever seen? 
I'm gonna say Nightmare on Elm Street because it was I saw it when I sold it all. I wasn't supposed to, and I snuck up and watched it on cable and didn't sleep for like three days. Go back and watch it now. It's not. It's it's very dated now, but but yeah. scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. Yeah. I think I saw two minutes of Nightmare on Elm Street three when I was like six. Yeah. And I was traumatized by it. I didn't watch a nightmare movie until like I hit high school. Basically, yeah. <laughs> it was the worst thing that ever happened. What would you rather get into a fight with? One hundred ducks with human level intelligence or two cats with cat level intelligence but they have adamantium claws wow uh, i'm gonna go with ducks and i don't know why <laughs> i feel like if they have human-like intelligence i could at least reason with them so <laughs> you're in a fight to the death with someone your same height and weight you can either wield a wooden baseball bat or a 12-inch chef's knife the other person gets the other weapon what do you choose baseball bat it's kind of longer you get, reach. Longer reach, right? Yeah. yeah. Hopefully you can knock the knife out of their hand. Finish the phrase. If I didn't work in film or entertainment, I would be a... Musician. That makes sense. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> What's your favorite memory related to horror film or filmmaking? Being on the set for Among the Shadows. It was the first time that we had done such a big production. Everything was just kind of clicking. The team was great. And that's probably my best memory so far. So. Nice. Favorite starship captain? Picard. And I say that not being a Star Trek fan. <laughs> Which slasher movie villain would you most like to get a drink with? Freddy Krueger. I said, where's the fucking bourbon? That makes sense, too. Yeah. I think he, you can have a good conversation with him. Because so he understands the, the psychological side. He just didn't kill you. He, he, he messed with you before. You know, he would, he would really <laughs> mess with your head before he killed you, so... Gene, I'd like to thank you for being on the show. If people want more information about you, where should they look to? Uh, website, social media? Um, yeah, we're on all of them. You can go to serif.film for the production company. Um, we get the new .film domain, so it's serif.film. And you go to geneblaylock.com. That's my personal site. We're also on Serif Films on Twitter and Facebook and Gene Blaylock on Twitter and Facebook. Sounds great. Uh, fans, you can follow us on Facebook. We are at the point of a knife there. And you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Point of a Knife. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's good fun. I'd really like to thank Gene for taking some time to sit down with us. Be sure to check out some of the work that he and his team have produced over at Sarah Films' YouTube channel. Next episode, I'm sitting down with writer Zach Olkowicz. He's attached and working on several high-profile properties, including two collaborations with James Wan and a feature over at Dimension. He gives us a rare and candid look at what it's like being a working writer inside the Hollywood studio system in 2017. At the Point of a Knife was created and hosted by me, Eric Navaretti and produced by Renee Amador. At the Point of a Knife is an Automaton Creative production. For more of our work, visit our new site, automatoncreative.com. Logo and title design by Jonathan B. Perez. For more of his work, check out jonathanbperez.com. Be sure to follow the show on Facebook and subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher. And while you're at it, help more people find the show by sharing with friends and leaving us a review. It really helps.